The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Good morning, Fredericksburg, Virginia. You guys can Virginia. find your way back to your seats and grab a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, there's plenty of them on the seats next to you. Make sure you grab one of those. That's our gift to you. And opened, open your Bible to the book of Isaiah. We'll begin in Isaiah chapter 1, but this morning we're going to be covering an overview of the book of Isaiah as we have been over the course of this summer. Do an overview. First we looked at the books of wisdom, and now we're beginning to look at the major prophets. The only major prophet we are not doing an overview series on uh, this summer would be the prophet Jeremiah, since we are doing an expositional series through the book. And uh, at the end of that series, we'll wrap up by doing sort of a backwards look as an overview of what we've covered in that case. So for the rest of the summer, this month, we'll be looking at the major prophets beginning this morning with Isaiah. So please open your copy of God's Word to the book of Isaiah. Let's begin uh, with prayer, asking for God's help. Father, we are thankful to you for your Word, which we have come to, to sit under, to learn from, to be nourished by, and to feast on. God, without your word, we would have no hope of truth and guidance in this world. Lord, as the disciples said to Jesus, our Savior, where else can we go, O Lord, for you have the words of eternal life. And so we come this morning to feast on the words of eternal life. To that end, Lord, I pray that your spirit would open the, the scriptures to us, that as we study the prophet Isaiah, we would be taught and instructed and encouraged by this word, by the oracles of this man and his disciples many thousands of years ago to speak to us today. So God, I ask that you would illuminate our minds to the truth of your word, to give us encouragement, wisdom, boldness as we walk faithfully in light of your word. And would we pray for those who are traveling or sick, who cannot come to be with us this morning, that you would encourage them, that they are absent from the body, they are present in spirit. And so, Father, we also pray particularly for uh, John and Sandra. We're grateful, as always, for the gift of life for Alma. We pray, God, that Alma would continue to grow in strength. Uh, we pray, God, for her uh, jaundiced issue and, and pray that, God, you would, in your own sovereignty and in your own ways, heal and uh, protect her. We pray, God, for rest for Sandra and for John, for patience for Sandra and John as they still have to care for the other six children they have. And Lord, we ask, God, that you would just care for them, comfort them as a God of all comfort, and encourage them by your word. Lord, we pray for uh, many of our own people who are traveling and are sick, that they too would be comforted. And we pray for those who are not here or not gathered with the body as they ought to be because of sin or neglect. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to uh, find in your word truth that they can cling to, belong to, that they would be restored to you through your gentle correction and rebuke, God. They would repent, confess, and come again into fellowship with you. So, Father, we again ask for your time over this next 30, 45 minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The central question in the theme of the book of Isaiah is one about kingship. You may be familiar with Isaiah around Advent time, around Christmas time. That's often the place where many pastors and Advent devotionals will take you to Isaiah chapter 7, 9, 11, the wonderful counselor, the one who's born of a virgin, the one who would be the prince of peace, on whose shoulders the government would reside. We see maybe an Easter, you travel to Isaiah 53, and you see of the servant who was pierced for our transgressions, numbered among those who are sinners. But there's much more than just messianic tales in the book of Isaiah. In fact, that's about maybe 5% of what Isaiah is speaking of. That's a crucial 5%. It's a crucial detail, but the book of Isaiah is about kingship. It's about lordship. And the question that it asks its readers and its listeners is this. Who leads you? Who is in charge of your life? Who commands your soul? Do you have a king? Now, listen, we're Americans, and we're proud of the fact that we have no kings. We fought a war to separate ourselves from a king. And yet, to pretend that we don't need rule, leadership, guidance, would be foolish. Even our government, though set up in a particular way to avoid sort of the pitfalls and the excesses of a monarchy, still places before us rulers and leaders who are meant to guide us and lead us and even rule over us in a democratic way in righteousness and truth and injustice. But still, as we read in the Old Testament, we're reading a, a monarchical society where there's a nation who's ruled by a king. There's factionalisms and war and conquests from one kingdom to another, and if you're not ruled by one king, you're subservient to another. And this concept can be hard for us, particularly as Americans, to wrap our mind around because we aren't typically exhorted to listen to, to submit to, and to obey the rule of a particular person or ruler. But that's the question Isaiah poses for its readers. Who rules you? Who commands you? your soul. The themes of the book of Isaiah, on one hand, starts with judgment. Much like the prophets in the Old Testament, God has much to say and indict Israel and Judah. But on the other hand, there's much about hope. And this theme of judgment and hope comes together in the form of these promises in Isaiah and in other passages. And these promises reveal for us God's redemptive plan and His purposes. So despite the judgment and despite the promises, God's people are called to trust in a sovereign God. And by sovereign, I don't simply mean His ability to do what He wishes, though that is simply an attribute of God. But by sovereign, I mean kingly. So the question that Isaiah asks, who leads you, who commands you, who rules you? In other words, who is your king? Isaiah also answers, it must be God. God is the true king of Israel, of his people. 
It is God's kingdom to which his people must belong, and that kingdom is like no other. God is a king unlike any other king. He puts all earthly kings to shame. The kings of other nations and the tribes are errant and false. These are smaller and inadequate kings to rule in righteousness, perfection, and justice. Even the kings and the rulers of God's own people in Israel were set up to fail. Remember this story from the very beginning in 1 Samuel when the people cried out for a king. And though God, and through his prophet Samuel, told them this was a bad idea, God nevertheless relented and allowed them to set up for themselves a king, beginning first with Saul. And though there was a bright spot for a moment, King David, much of the kingship and the rule of God's people was one of failure. In this sense, Israel was not much better than any of the nations around it. And it's in this context that Isaiah is written. Remember from our study in Jerusalem, or in Jeremiah, this is a southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is at the center, where both Jeremiah and Isaiah are writing from. Now, Isaiah writes about 100 years before Jeremiah writes. And during this 100 years, Jeremiah, or or, uh, uh, Isaiah, excuse me, is foretelling of the coming judgment, much like Jeremiah is telling of the judgment that comes. So, 100 years prior to Jeremiah, Isaiah says, Friends, beware. Your idolatry and your rebellion against the Lord is inviting the wrath of God. By the time we get to Jeremiah, we see that Isaiah's words have been fulfilled, that the Assyrian nation has overtaken the northern tribes of Israel and brought them under captivity. And now Jeremiah warns, just like the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribe of Judah will also face the same fate, this time from Babylon, leaders from the north. So similar to these two prophets, we have warnings of judgment peppered with promises of hope, which are meant to set the stage for those who are trusting in God to be confident in his kingship, to look nowhere else for hope, but to the redemptive purposes and plans of their sovereign God. How will we do this this morning? We're going to look in three ways. Jeremiah or Isaiah is typically split into three ways. First, you have chapters 1 through 39, the bulk of the book here. And this is all about confrontation. Here we see Isaiah confronting, by God's decree, Israel in Jerusalem, warning them of God's judgments against their hard-heartedness in the rebellion. And then later in the book, in chapters 40 through 55, a sort of a second portion, we see a comfort that comes. After the warning and the judgment comes exile, and then out of exile comes the word of comfort and consolation, where God, through Isaiah, comforts his people. And in the latter half of the book, the latter part of the book, verses 56, chapter 56 through six, chapter 66, is all about the coming kingdom, the consummation, that view, that destiny at the end that all the hopes must be tied to and penned to. So in these three parts, we see God's confrontation, God's consolation, and ultimately God's consummation. His confrontation, His consolation, and His consummation. We'll explore these as we do 
You'll be helped if you keep the book of Isaiah open. We'll spend time a little bit in passages as we go, but by and large, we'll work fairly quickly through many chapters at a time. We begin first with chapters 1 through 39 of God's confrontation, and the theme of this first part of Isaiah is all about God's judgment against the hard hearts of his people. Notice what it says here in verses 1 and 2. This is the opening line, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Notice the language. God now speaks through his prophet about the rebellion and the wickedness and the corruption of Israel. He's speaking here not only to the leaders of Jerusalem, but to the people of the city. All of the nation of Israel has been corrupted and their hearts become hardened against God and his ways. It says in verse 4 that there are people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, generation after generation, they have rebelled against God. They are corrupt in their dealings. It says they have forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. They are estranged from him. The relationship was they once enjoyed the covenantal privilege of being known and knowing God is now broken and estranged because of their sin, corruption, and rebellion. They have turned to other nations and their idols. They have worshipped false gods and they have sought the ways of idolatry and wickedness. They have set up altars to Baal. This has invited God's wrath. Despite God's judgment and warning, despite his sending of messengers and prophets, they have over and over again rebelled against his word. And so God comes in Isaiah to confront and to warn of this impending judgment. In these first five verses, God is warning particularly that he is going to send the nations to conquer Israel because of their rebellion and their idolatry and their injustice. These first five chapters are bookended, not only there in verse 4 of chapter 1, but look at verse, chapter 5, verse 24. It's the same sort of injustice that's raging. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So Israel is in trouble, and God is saying he will come in judgment because of their rebellion. And God's judgment here is not to utterly destroy, but to correct, to bring obedience where disobedience currently reigns, to create fruitfulness and faithfulness where rebellion and rejection are currently at play. 
He is in one sense coming to tear down the sinfulness of his people and to destroy the wickedness of their hearts in order to create faithfulness in its place. These chapters move along and say that there is a judgment coming. Verse 8 of chapter 5. Woe to those who join house to house and who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. For they have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down in revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness, and they shall... Then shall the lambs graze as in the pastures, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. What's the picture painted here? That because of their wickedness, their idolatry, because of the sin and the rebellion of their heart, God will send them into exile. If you're reading the prophets, this is a familiar tune. God's judgment by means of the other nations will threaten the very promises that he has made to their forefathers. The very sins which they have committed have invited God's wrath against them. And so God says that they will be sent into exiles because of their lack of knowledge, faithfulness, their pride has caused them to fall. But these five verses lead us into one of the more well-known chapters of Isaiah, the chapter 6. In this we see this vision of the Lord. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now remember when we said that Isaiah's point here was about kingship. It was about who ruled and had command over his people. Was it the nations or the false gods or would it be God? The context here in Jeremiah or in Isaiah chapter 6 says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The word here for Lord is not what we typically come to expect in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which is designated in our English translations as capital L-O-R-D. Here we see the word Adonai, which is the kingly form of God's sovereign power. So he sees that there is a king, Uzziah, which has died, and yet our attention is not drawn to this king, but to the Lord, the king who sits upon a throne. And it's not simply that he has a throne because he is a king, but that kings who sit on a throne are poised to judge and to render justice. It is the seat of their power 
and their authority and ultimately their judgment. He is high and lifted up, lifted even above the temple. The train of his robe, the very end of his robe, fills the temple itself. And above him and around him stood the seraphim, protectors of all that is holy and sacred. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, an expression of the holiness of God. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And the one called to the other and he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This repetition is to put it to the highest degree, the holiest of all. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, a sign of judgment. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah here sees the vision of the ruler of Israel, not one who is rejected, not one who is despised, but one who is above all. He sees him as he really and truly is, but not as he is treated among Israel. He sees him in his glory. He sees him in his holiness. He sees him in his justice and his judgment. This is a picture of God which terrifies him and throws himself at the mercy of God. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Lost before a holy God. Why? Because he is unclean, and his people is unclean. There is nothing he recognizes before this picture of a holy God that commends him before him. Isaiah recognizes that he and anyone else who stands before this God, the king high and lifted up in his throne, full of glory and power, holy, 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 the commander of the army of angels is poised to condemn those who are sinners. He throws himself at the mercy of this God. Woe is me, he says. And in verse 6, it says that one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah, upon the confession of his sinfulness, his unworthiness before God, the recognition that before a holy and just and righteous God, he stands not simply condemned, but eternally damned. He is cleansed. He is purified. Upon this purification, he is then commissioned. In verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, eye, their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He says, I'm sending you. 
to preach to a people who will not listen, whose hearts are hardened, whose ears are stopped up, whose eyes are blind to the truth. You will preach and they will not hear. Isaiah says in verse 11, Cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. That was what we saw again in verse five, chapter 5. Until the Lord removes people far away into exile and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Yet the holy seed is its stump. He says, you're going to go and preach repentance, but they will not repent. How long, O Lord, will I preach repentance? Until wrath comes. Though there won't be utter destruction, a remnant will remain. Yet we will see that like a mow, Israel will fall. All that remains will be a stump. And yet there is a seed in the midst of the stump from which we will see a shoot will emerge. So Isaiah here in chapter 6 is commissioned to preach to a hard-hearted people. Eventually, this hard-hearted people will be cut down by Assyria. And the remnant will continue to remain. And this remnant will bring forth, ultimately, a Davidic king. As we move forward in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 through 12, tell us about the seed that resides in this stump. It's the seed of the king David. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David who said from his line will be a king whose kingdom will have no end. He will always sit on the throne of his kingdom. And we knew that that king wasn't David and it wasn't David's sons either. It wasn't Solomon or Absalom or any who would follow. But this promise seed would come from the line of David. We are told that it comes from the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse. This king is the Davidic king that will represent God's rule on earth as it should have been. But Isaiah doesn't dwell too long on this. He speaks about the rule of this king and moves on again to God's judgment, not simply of Israel, and of Judah, but of the nations, of the ultimate judgment against Assyria and Babylon, which is to come in chapters 13 to 23. There's God's judgment on the nations as his wrath is poured out against all who rebel against him. And eventually we come to chapter 24, where there's a picture of judgment and ultimate destruction, which leads to hope. So look at chapter 24. After Isaiah leads us in this section of judgment and of kingly rule by this Davidic king, we see again the threat of judgment by those who will not accept this judgment. In chapter 24, verses 21, it says that on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before its elders. There's a picture of this judgment which is to come. 
Again, he continues to say, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, a fortified city in ruin. And foreigners' palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of ruthless is put down. Destruction comes for all those who rebel against God which leads to hope in God's restoration. He continues, On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, the one on which the temple would have been built, the mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's a picture of a feast. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Though judgment will come, there is a better future under God's reign. He destroys the earthly kings and he sets up his own reign as the heavenly king, this Davidic king which represents God on earth. And from this destruction over the earthly kings comes the hope and the blessing of a better future under this Davidic king. We conclude this section with a view of the historical outlook of Jerusalem's ultimate rise and fall in chapters 38 through 39, highlighting the failure and the corruption of human governments and the ultimate necessity of God's divine kingship. Remember, we're establishing the need for God's kingship above our own. Look in chapter 33. In verses 5 and 6, we see a picture here. that The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So who rules at the center of this new city under the Davidic king? It is God himself. He is established as the king of his people. So Israel will fall. Jerusalem will fall. But ultimately God will rule and reign over his people. Look a little further down into verse 17. The effect of righteousness, that is the righteousness of God's rule and reign, will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever. This is a a rule of peace, of justice. Again, we see the righteousness and the holiness of God on display here, just as we saw in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, of glory, of might. In verse 22 of chapter 33, Verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty and his glory. They see a a land that stretches afar. And in verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So central to the rule 
of God's people is not a foreign God or a foreign nation. It is not an earthly king, but a divine king. A king, yes, who comes from the seed of David, who sprouts out from the stump of Jesse, but it is God himself, a divine king. All other nations will fade away, and all other rules, the rulers will bow down to the rule and the reign of God. So central to the imagery and the theme of the book in this section here is that chapter in chapter 6, which portrays God as a king who is holy and gloriously sovereign over his people, poised to judge. And how will he do this judgment? Through the consequences of sin meted out to the conquest of other nations over Israel, bringing Israel low in order that he may be bound up again that he may show his ways are better, more sure. The call is to trust in this God, not in any other gods, not in their own strength or might, but in God as their ruler and king. So in chapters 1 through 39, there's a confrontation of Israel, God's judgment and warning against hard hearts. But in the next chapters here, chapters 40 through 55, there is comfort. It is God's consolation. In chapters 40 through 48, we see that God comes to comfort a people who had been led into exile. At the end of verse chapter 39, we see that there is Babylonian captivity. Somewhere between chapters 39 and 40, Judah is fallen and taken into captivity, and a word then comes to the people in captivity about their coming freedom. It says in verse 1 of chapter 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her well warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is restoring his people who have been led into exile. All that Israel has been warned against now, all of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah has come true, and they have come now under judgment and under captivity, and then finally comes the word from the Lord, that this captivity will come to an end, that forgiveness is on its way, that they will be repaid and restored. This is indeed great consolation and great comfort for his people. It's an exiled people who's lost everything, doubting the goodness and the promises of God, now receive this word tenderly from God. Comfort, comfort my people. This is a call to trust And they're called to prepare themselves for the coming king who will rule over them in righteousness and goodness. In verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. This wilderness of their captivity, the wilderness of their rebellion, the wilderness of the consequences of their sin begin to prepare their heart for the coming of God. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, recall the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 where the glory of the Lord filled the earth. Smoke filled the temple. That God, who is king, rules high and lifted up. Here the comfort of God's people is that this king will come and establish his rule and reign. 
it will be revealed, the glory of the Lord. All flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken of such. So he calls them to prepare their hearts for this king who is coming to establish the kingdom which has been promised to them for ages. That kingdom which was lost will soon be restored, not simply to its former glory, but to glory like they've never seen it before. The very glory of the Lord will be revealed. This is such a comfort and a consolation to those who have lost everything in exile. And yet still we see that their hearts will be hardened despite the calling of God to prepare themselves. So what does God do? Knowing that Israel will repeat the same sins and habits and patterns of rebellion again and again, knows that he must send a messenger who will come and lead his people. He sets the course for future glory, this kingdom to be established in perfect peace and righteousness through the promise to raise up a faithful servant who will act vicariously for his people on behalf of his people. In verse chapter 42, look at the first nine verses. That though Israel was called to be a servant, they will fail. Yet God will send and raise up a servant, he says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So the servant will come to lead his people to be a light to the nations. That which Israel for years and ages and generations have failed to do instead of being a light was led by other nations into darkness, will be led out of darkness into light by this servant who is called by the Lord. He raises up this servant who acts for Israel. This servant will have the Spirit of God empowering him to do so. Go to chapter 49. There we see the servant working on behalf of his people. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, all you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. This is the servant of the Lord who speaks. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. So notice the servant stands in for the people. You are my servant, Israel. That's the name he was given. In whom I will be glorified. But I said I have, been la- I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. And the Lord says, 
He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that thy salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And through this servant, who was chosen by God, anointed by the Spirit, led to be for Israel what Israel could not be for themselves, brings Jacob back to God. This all leads to this picture of consummation, of eschatological joy, where Zion not is just a place in Jerusalem or a mountain on which the temple is built, but now becomes a picture of the heavenly city. In chapters 56 through the end of the book, we see the consummation the bringing together of this community which was promised and envisioned throughout all of Isaiah. We see a vision of the future kingdom come together of God's people which becomes open to all nations. Look at chapter 55. The compassion of the Lord is burst open because of the servant and because of the king, because of the messenger who comes to speak these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy, eat, and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is the picture of this calling to a nation. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. The nation that you do not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. The call then is in verse 6, to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is not like us who would judge in petty discernment. He would not simply say, because you rejected me, I reject you. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. For we are inclined to vengeance. God, though he will judge, promises here to restore. The invitation, even to his enemies, to even the nations that despise him, is to come. This is a picture of the future kingdom where all who come in repentance are welcomed into this city. Cities of running and flowing water, where those who thirst will never thirst again. Where there is a feast for those who are hungry, are welcome to eat and feast and never hunger again. Those who have nothing are given generously and abundantly. Those who are condemned by their sin are pardoned without measure. This is the consummation of the coming of the kingdom. This is the promise of God's future glory, restoring his people. We see this at the very end 
a promise ultimately of a new heavens and a new earth. There in verse six, chapter 66, verses 22 and onwards. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the promise that God will restore and create a new people in a new city, a new community out of those who have been redeemed by the work of the Davidic king, the servant who would come and suffer vicariously for his people, and the messenger of God who preaches the good news. What does this all lead us to? Well, we see that there are three characters here that are central to Isaiah's promises. We know them as a priest, a king, and a prophet. But the New Testament teaches us that this isn't three particular people but one individual who fulfills all three. Of course, we speak of Jesus, who comes as the prophet, priest, and king of God's people. He, of course, is the Davidic king, mentioned in chapter 7 and onward, in chapter 9. He is the seed which comes from the stump of Jesse. He is the consolation of Israel. He, too, is that suffering servant who is raised up, who is anointed with God's Spirit, He is the one who goes and suffers vicariously for his people, taking on the iniquities of his people, though he himself had not sinned. He is the mouthpiece of God, the prophet who preaches and brings this good news. In chapter 61, we see that there is a picture of what the Lord is doing through this messenger. When it says of this messenger, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This... Jesus says it's himself in Luke chapter 4. He is the one that God has anointed and sent to bring the good news, literally the gospel. He is the consolation of Israel. Simon himself says this when he picks up Jesus in the temple in the early chapters of the gospel. My eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. It's the same word there in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people. See, all of the streams that Isaiah leads us to look at lead us to the same person who is Jesus. The Davidic king, the suffering servant, and this mouthpiece, the prophet of God, is Jesus, who is the king, who is the priest, the servant of God, who is the prophet or the messenger sent by God, his anointed servant. All of this comes to a point that those who read Isaiah must walk away with. The message of Isaiah is this. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in earthly leaders who only lead you to sin. Stop trusting in your strength, but remember Yahweh's covenant. He who is faithful is the true ruler and king of his people. In the city he establishes is righteous and holy, 
and so will his people be. Jesus is the means by which this comes to fruition for those who are on this side of the new covenant. Jesus comes as the Davidic king, the suffering servant, and the messenger of God and completely flips the script on all the expectations of what this king, servant, and ruler would look like. But because of Jesus, the message of Isaiah here, to not trust in ourselves, but in this prophet, priest, and king, compels us to live counterintuitively then to what seems obvious to us or to the world. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. That is the priority of the Christian's life. Any disciple of Jesus seeks first the kingdom which he is seeking to establish. Several principles then we must maintain if we are to seek first the kingdom which Jesus establishes in his own blood and is working through the church. The first principle is that real greatness requires service. What would have been expected of this king is one of great power and might, impressive feet and features. The servant here is not like the king, but the king's greatness actually is found in his servants. Go to Luke chapter 22 and notice how Jesus talks about greatness. In Luke chapter 22, we are dropped into a conversation the disciples are having with one another. In fact, they're debating about who among them is the greatest. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, says that a dispute rose among the disciples as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, says to them that the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The expectation is that the greatest are those who are being served. And yet Jesus, he says, comes not to be served, but to serve. And so he goes on to say that you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, my disciples, as my, my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is kingly and servant language brought together. That the great king coming from the line of David is also the suffering servant who serves his people. He is the mouthpiece of God which brings the good news. Real greatness requires service. It means humbling yourself as Jesus has done. That should be the character of the church. That if we seek to be great among Fredericksburg, if we seek to glorify God, we do not do so by rising above others, setting ourselves up as more superior, more put together, or more moral. Though, friends, let not our morals slip below that of the world. But it actually is to go lower in service, to humble ourselves, to prostrate ourselves in service of those to whom we have come to serve, just like our Savior. The picture of the king and the servant and the prophet of God is he who has given himself a life of service. In fact, there is no greater love 
and that a friend gives himself for another. So real greatness requires service in your job, in your work, in your communities. Often you are rewarded for conquering others, for climbing the ladder, for being at the head of the table, the top of the hill. But in the church and in the kingdom of God, it is those who serve and who are the least that are the greatest. Ask yourself, does my life reveal a life of service? Is the greatness that I seek achieved through my serving of others or through their serving of me? May it be that those who are called servants of Christ serve the world whom Christ died to redeem. The second principle, in addition to real greatness requiring service, is that real love requires sacrifice. It is the servant which gives himself for those whom he serves. To serve and to prostrate ourselves before others, to give ourselves in service to the world and ultimately to God, means that we must be willing to give up and sacrifice that which is precious to us. Certainly that which the world says we must hold on to. Our own comfort, security, even our life and our health at times must be sacrificed for the sake of our calling, like Isaiah, to go. This is what real love looks like. That God did not abandon his people to their sin, but sent Christ, his only son, the king, the priest, and his servant, the people, that he may redeem them, so we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the love we have for others. Isaiah did not reprimand his people or isolate himself from them. He claims partnership with them. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and from a people of unclean lips. And he is commissioned to go to those very people to preach to them the good news. That is our calling, brothers and sisters. With real love, which requires real sacrifice, for real glory, which requires real service, we preach the good news that those who are far off may be brought near, that those who are blind may see, those who are deaf may hear. But where does all this begin? The last principle is this, that real faith requires confession. Real faith requires confession. We must be willing and constantly in the practice of confessing that we are in deep and desperate need of liberation from our sin. We must recognize that we are the captives in need of liberating. We are the poor in need of help. We are the blind in need of sight. We are the deaf in need of hearing. It is to us first the good news must come and must be believed before we preach it to others. That Jesus says that he has come to bring good news to the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to those who are in prison, favor for those who have been smitten by the Lord, vengeance on those who have been oppressed and persecuted, comfort to those who mourn, to those who are covered in ashes, a beautiful garment and oil of gladness. We must first see Jesus as this king. We must first see Jesus as one who has served us in great sacrifice. We must confess that we are in need of such work. We are in need of Jesus ourselves. So friends, if you have not yet cast your hope, your trust, 
and your faith on this Jesus, now is the time you must do it. For just as Jerusalem and Judah heard the coming of the wrath of God, friends, hear it for yourselves now. That all those who reject the kingdom and the king who is Jesus will likewise face the wrath of God. And yet there is time. Isaiah has already said, for those who hear, turn to the Lord. If you hear his voice, confess, repent, and believe. The book of Isaiah leads us not simply to behold God's judgment and accept it as a, a, a reality, but to see it as a warning where there is hope, not of judgment, but of consolation, redemption, that you and I can avoid the harsh reality of God's wrath because Jesus has suffered it for us. Jesus' death on the cross is like the servant in Isaiah 53 who was punished for our iniquities. His stripes, his wounds are what redeems us. He was numbered among the transgressors not because he transgressed God, but because he identified with us, became like us, and suffered for us. His death was a substitute for our death. And as God swallows up death in the cross, we are freed from it. We must confess, like the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew, that blessed are the poor in spirit, who recognizes they have nothing to offer God, like Isaiah before his vision of the Holy One. We confess we are poor, and we will inherit the earth. The new heavens and the new earth, with Christ as our King, with the new Jerusalem as our city, with the doors open to the nations who flow in to find comfort and mercy. That is the future of God as our King and our hope and our country. May Isaiah lead you to trust in this King, not in yourself or not ultimately in the kings or the rulers or the leaders around you, but in God who has redeemed you and has established you as a member of his kingdom, and has sent you into this world to preach the good news of the king who has set himself below that we may be raised up. Let's pray. Father, we have only begun to scratch the surface of the good news of the gospel here, that Jesus is the servant whom we love, who has sacrificed himself for us, that he is the one who has given all that we have nothing to offer, that we may have true redemption and hope and peace. God, I pray that we would be reminded of the good news as we continue to sing that Jesus died for the ungodly, that his death was in our place, his life was lived for us, and his resurrection gives for us the confirmation of his acceptance and the work that now works for us. We love you, Lord. We pray and we sing always in the name of Jesus. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. To make a wretch's treasure Searing loss The Father died
Still. 